Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California and today's discussion with author Kamin Chang. I'm John Zippero, the club's vice president of media and editorial and Michelle's co-host. At the Commonwealth Club, we're producing hundreds of programs a year on a wide variety of issues, online as well as many in-person programs. So head over to commonwealthclub.org MMS for more upcoming programs, as well as video and audio of past events. If you're watching us live on YouTube, go ahead and add your questions into the chat box and we'll work some of them into our discussion here today. Now let's meet Michelle Miao. She's the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Hello again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John. Great to see you, even though it's virtually. I know we're still trekking along the whole COVID-19 thing and figuring it out, but at least, you know, we're trekking along. Thank you to all of you who are joining us for this program. I'm excited for it. I think it's a, a great breath of fresh air from all the serious conversations that we have uh, typically here on this program. If you're joining us for the first time, I haven't said this in a long time, but the Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. <laughs> well, without further ado, let's introduce to you our speaker today, Kaming Chang, who is the author of Gods of Want, a collection of really great, incredible short stories, including ghost stories. So let's talk all about it. Kaming, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, I'm so excited. <laughs> yes, we were definitely excited for your book, your latest book, um, Gods of Want. Well, it's tradition here. We try to ask this at every show, but share with us a coming out story. Oh, a coming out story. Oh, that's so, that's such a good question. Um, I think, I think back to, I think I was in high school and had a very close friend. Um, we were both in the same, uh, actually high school journalism class together. Um, so we're always telling other people's stories and always figuring out how to tell other people's stories better. Um, and we'd really establish a kind of trust between us um, and had grown up together. Um, and I remember one day I, we, we would always like linger after school and never actually leave until it was like nighttime. <laughs> um, so we were just, we would always just hang out and talk and talk and talk endlessly. Um, and this is someone who I can still talk to endlessly. Um, and yeah, and I think I, I told her and she, she later told me that I did it so dramatically that she thought I was going to tell her something really horrible. Oh. <laughs> um, which I find hilarious because I think that's very on brand for the kind of storyteller that I am, <laughs> which is really big setups. Um, and yeah, it was ended up being, uh, just another, another kind of storytelling moment between, between the two of us. Um, yeah. I read online uh, that you had written a story in elementary school about a girl who turns into a tiger. Um, so take us back to when did you kind of see yourself as, oh, I want to be a writer. I want, this is my calling. Yeah, I, it's so funny because I, I do believe that I'm still the same writer as I was when I was 12. <laughs> um, I, I'm obsessed with uh, kind of the same themes um, and animal transformations um, and other forms of consciousness. But yeah, I think for me, I, I was a huge journal writer when I was a child. I thought there was something so romantic about Dear Diary. Um, and I was really, really obsessed with kind of recording the gossip and the hearsay um, and the drama that I kind of saw around me, whether it was 
you know, things on the playground that I would forget two days later um, or what I was heard or witnessed in my family or in the world around me. Um, and because of that, writing became something purely for myself. Um, and because it was a diary and a journal, and I really kind of romanticized that idea of a, of a story that I could hold so close to myself, um, there was also something a little bit illicit about it that made it so fun and enjoyable. Um, so I think since then, I haven't really stopped um, writing. Uh, it's just now I, that there's an audience. So I've kind of changed <laughs> um, the way that I approach writing. Um, but I try to still remain grounded in a practice, which I think I ended up starting at a very young age without even realizing it. When you say there was something kind of like a little illicit about it, was that because it was not encouraged or just because it was a, you were doing it as a private thing? I think it was mostly because I was doing it as a private thing. And I, I wrote so, so much in that journal that it would often like keep me way past any sort of like bedtime um, and I was often doing that instead of doing anything else that I was supposed to be doing. Um, and I really leaned into, into my obsessions <laughs> uh, with writing in my journal. So it was like a combination of um, being discouraged, uh, but rightfully so. Like I completely agree with the people who are discouraging me. Um, but also because it was uh, something that I could make for myself um, that was wasn't necessarily touched by anyone else or seen by anyone else. That was very precious, I think. Tell us um, what kind of inspired or influenced you and, and your imagination. I mean, you know, when I was reading Gods of Want, it's I was trying to get into your head. Uh, but there's so many different ways and, and mazes, I think I should say, of creativity and characters and you know, incidents. And so... Uh, growing up, you know, were you, were some of these stories, are they told to you or what's it like? And it, what I'm getting at is as an Asian person myself, I mean, I grew up around lots and lots of stories, ghost stories, mythical creatures, spirits, things like that. Yeah, I think definitely oral storytelling um, has always been kind of a huge tradition in my family, even not knowing that that was the term for it. Um, like I remember I would be sitting on the bus with my mom and she would turn to me and say, okay, let's talk story now. Um, there's this sense that time was created for us to tell stories. Um, and all these moments that seem like wasted time, you know, sitting on a bus in a commute, um, in a lull after dinner or waiting for a meal, like all of those moments weren't just these kind of in-between life moments. They were these stages, um, for theatrical storytelling, um, and for twisting histories. Uh, yeah, and I found something so flexible about that storytelling form, so alive, um, and a kind of myth-making too, um, because I think the process of something becoming a memory or becoming a story that we tell others is myth-making, um, and that sense of um, mythology and playfulness I was trying to imbue in the written form, um, which is very different from the oral form, but I, I always hope that I can kind of play with writing um, something that's meant to be like static and written in a way that captures, I think, the spirit of some of that more oral storytelling or that the sonic quality of listening to a story. In the book, The Gods of Want, your collection of short stories, um, in particular, the, the story of the, the cousins, the ghosts of the cousins who are... are I don't know if haunting or afflicting or just being with this, this couple is, is, is the correct term, but, 
part of what I was just thinking of was just first of all, you the 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 storytelling and the stories um, kind of passed down from generation to generation. That's woven in there. She's remembering back uh, to things her mother's had said or, or her, her was it her aunt. Um, but so I'm, I'm just. But it also kind of brought up to my to made me wonder. It's like do. Do you dream a lot? Do you, do you remember your dreams? And does that ever fuel stories or is that a separate part of your imagination? That's such a great question because I was just talking to someone about dreams um, because I think dreams are hugely influential to me. Um, I've always been a very vivid dreamer. And very interestingly, like my brother was always able to lucid dream. Um, and uh, my mom also had very vivid dreams. And we grew up also telling each other about our dreams. I know there's a kind of a cliche of like how boring that is and how you never want to hear your friend's dreams. <laughs> and you just, people are like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to listen to that. But I'm deeply fascinated by our, our kind of unconscious minds and our, our more imaginative minds and also what they reveal about our anxieties, our fears, but also what's possible in those dreams. Um, and what happens when the kind of logic of the world that we live in breaks down? Um, yeah, so I'm very interested in these other realities that can sometimes feel more real than what we're told is real. Um, and it definitely influences uh, my work. A lot of imagery, I think, um, comes from my dreams um, or from other people's dreams as well. So no dreams are safe for me. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to read um, pretty much, you know, how the book begins. And uh, I think that it's profound. It just sets the tone for so many of us that tell stories for generations and generations. But um, you know, had an aunt who went to the dentist and asked to get her tongue pulled. We only do teeth, the dentist said, but did it anyway. She took her tongue home in a jar and flushed it down the toilet. And years later, a fisherman in Half Moon Bay made the evening news, waving my aunt's tongue like a flag at the end of his pole. The police are still looking for the body it belonged to. <laughs> That's pretty much how the, how the book opens up. Tell us, you know, talk to us about, um, yeah, why focus on stories of aunties. Aunties and, you know, not necessarily literally, right? Yeah, I'm really interested in who we mother and care for through the course of our lives and who mothers and cares for us over the course of our lives, because I think there are there are very transient forms of being mothered and nurtured. And I'm really interested in yeah, in these aunties, not just necessarily being blood relations um, or even distant blood relations, but also being, you know, people in the neighborhood. I wanted it to be very amb ambiguous who these aunties were and how they were related to the narrator. Because um, I think I'm really, really interested in um, really valuing um, forms of motherhood and forms of care um, that happen um, because someone has chosen to do that. Um, yeah, and I think I'm just interested in, in different forms of ancestry that may not just be something like the nuclear family. Uh, but what does it mean to choose your ancestors or to have ancestry in a way that is kind of like horizontal or diagonal or or messy or also very fluctuating? Because I think there's this idea in the permanency of family, but I think I was really interested in the porousness of family and who can come in and out and what does it mean to, um, yeah, have these forms of love that are so deeply important but are also transient um, and may not be meant to you know, last over the course of a life, a lifetime, um, or maybe just very circumstantial. 
Well, so tell us more about your upbringing and your your youth. Uh, what was it like? Was it was it pleasant? Was it you know what were some of the formative moments and how did you interact with and were mothered by the the people in your family? Yeah, I think my stories are definitely indicative of the way that I was raised because I was surrounded by so many matriarchs, um, specifically grandmothers and aunts. Um, so there are the collectives in this book are definitely very re- reflective of the chorus of voices that were constantly present in my own life. Um, yeah, and to kind of experience matrilineal storytelling is something that I I didn't quite learn to honor in, in certain ways until later in my life. I kind of took it for granted that that was the fabric of my family. And I think as I continue to grow and realize, oh, these stories are being passed down to me specifically because the patrilineal family structure doesn't allow it for, for it doesn't allow for it to exist anywhere else. Doesn't allow for these stories to pass down to anyone else. It's it's coming to me because um, I'm part of this network, but it's not really allowed to exist in other forms. Um, so I think I've again, it's a it's this process of, of valuing those stories um, and wanting to center them and wanting to continue to probe and explore them. Sorry, I have a bird in my background who's being very loud right now. <laughs> Now this is a story that should be included, yeah. Because um, maybe the, there's an ancestor in the bird, uh, you know, who wants to be a part of this conversation. But um, yeah, to that point though, right? Like going, jumping from uh, fantasy, what's real, what's not real. I mean, I think for even the reader and someone myself as a, an AAPI a queer person, you know, I. I'm also glued to the themes that are included with the characters. You're sharing stories at the end of the day, you're touching on mental health, you know, femininity, migration, all of these themes. And so I wanted to, you know, ask you about like how intentional was that just to be able to include so many of, you know, these, these experiences that we have, did, did that just accidentally happen and they were including your characters or did you just kind of throw it all up and it was that natural? I think it's a combination of things. I think I, when I, when I form the character or, or the situation, I'm not always necessarily thinking like thematically what is resonating um, and what is kind of undergirding these characters. But I think what motivates me to write is about all of those issues I think that I write from a place of um, desire and sometimes anger and sometimes fr- frustration or a sense of injustice um, or a feeling that something needs to be expressed um, and that there isn't space in my life or in other people's life to express it in any other way. Um, and I think that motivation um, without a sense of justice, I don't think I would write at all. Um, and because of that, it ends up um, kind of feeding into what I write about and the kinds of characters and people that I'm interested in writing and exploring um, and the kinds of family structures that I I want to examine. Um, So yeah, I think it's like a combination of um, my own motivations to write um, and what fuels that. um, And then it just comes out kind of naturally in the writing. I'm a little worried now because we're not hearing the bird. I think we need proof of life. 
They're, yeah, they're very raucous. I have three parrots. <laughs> yeah, so they, they kind of come in and out um, depending on their level of jealousy because I think they find human conversation when it's not directed toward them to be very um, enviable. <laughs> <laughs> well, so families and, and however that family is, again, defined, the, the, you have both the, the, and by you, I mean, we all have this, of both, it, it's kind of a, there's the part that you're in it and that is, is of you and, and you really feel that. But then there's also, you know, everyone is always also outside of that in some way. So can you talk a bit, are there ways in which you're outside of the traditions of your family or, or you know, things that you're a bit either as you, you just chose some, to do something different or to think differently or that um, you just kind of took a different path? Yeah, I mean, I think I believe really deeply that writing is a secret life in a certain way. Um, and I don't mean it in literally a secret because it's like the most public, ironically, the most public form of my life out there is writing. Um, it is my most public presence. And yet there's something about it that feels like an amalgamation of the most intimate and secret parts of yourself, um, be it your dreams, what you're haunted by, what you're obsessed with, um, and what ends up kind of seeding these stories or being sprinkled throughout these stories are, are secret things that I think exist outside of um, many relationships, be it family or friends, relatives. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because it's this form of alchemy where all of those most secret and intimate part of yourselves, part of yourself becomes transformed in the process of writing. Um, and so on one hand, it feels like, oh, it's, it's this, um, it, it should feel like exposure and yet it never does because there is this, um, yeah, this feeling of alchemy and metaphor and transformation that somehow it's also become unrecognizable. And so it's, it's, there's a kind of safety in that as well. Um, that writing is a way for, for my secret self to exist in the world, but in these like various costumes and disguises and absurd scenarios, um, which I think is really fun. <laughs> it does feel very theatrical in a way. And when you're writing, are you, are you, is it, is it an experience for you of pouring out that private life and those private thoughts on the page? Or is it, are you thinking in terms of the reader whom you don't know, uh, them reading it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it, it actually comes, I think, channeled mostly through character and language. And I, I think I become very, very invested in what I've created. I'm kind of independent of an audience. So I feel like it's almost like developing a relationship with a character or with a voice or with language um, and like kind of building that for myself. Um, and then I try not to think too much about audience until it's the revision stage. And that's when I start to bring in and think about more of an outside perspective or more of an exterior gaze on the story. And then I start to think about, oh, what's working? What needs to be developed more? But I think it's really important for me in the, in the actual process of writing um, for it to feel really, really private and intimate and, and secret. Um, not unlike writing in a diary. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of doing, you know, something a little bit different, I mean, uh, I'll just, I'm showing my age now, you know, and maybe it's just a different generation, but when I came out and I was searching for LGBTQIA plus stories, and I mean, I would find a little, you know, section of a bookstore of, 
queer stories, but they were just that. And it wasn't necessarily like, you know, cultural connection. Um, so in some ways, right. Like I was a little like, wow, there are queer stories woven in this and they're not just like cute queer stories. It means a little bit of eroticism. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, grown up stories. You could just tell by even the titles of the stories in itself. And um, I don't even know if I can even read. I mean, it's making me shy, but I'll just say, you know, like a, the story of homophone, uh, even in, in the dead cousins, right. We have a story of um, a queer, you know, couple. Uh, can I say it? I don't know. There's a story of of pussy, the the character pussy eating pussy, <laughs> and, and then um and dykes. Anyway, look at me. I'm from a different generation, and probably going to pass out. But t- <laughs> talk to us about yeah, queer stories being woven in Gods of Want. Yeah, I mean, I tried to approach them with a sense of playfulness, even when they ha- felt like they had a certain maybe like edge to them or darkness. Um, kind of shadowing them as well. I mean, that story that you mentioned with the the wild title, I don't think I've read from that story yet. <laughs> um, it's a kind of metaphor and play on words because I wanted to think about like literal consumption and like, it, it is a story that ha- like ends in cannibalism, but it's not that serious, <laughs> which is such a strange phrase to say that it's not that serious, but it's about eating someone. Um, yeah, so I think I'm just really interested in pushing a metaphor to its farthest point and seeing what what can happen and what can be reborn out of that language. Um, yeah, and I think I'm just interested in um, impossibilities, I think. Because um, I think similarly, I grew up with a lot of like romance, a novel, like knowledge, a lot of like, I, I read a lot of Harlequin romances. Um, I consumed a lot of rom-coms. I was very invested in these forms um, that were so, so familiar to me. And I think I was just interested in um, just writing towards a new way of looking at those stories. Like I still tell people I'm very influenced by the romance genre. And I think in some ways I'm always writing in response to those like mass market paperback Harlequin romances that were so influential to me. Um, Because I think they were the only things that I saw that were like about women's desires um, in a certain way. Um, and obviously very, very different and, and very not queer at all. <laughs> like the opposite of that. But there was something so liberating um, in reading those stories that I think I wanted to write toward that um, and then also find a new language for the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell um, and for the kinds of coming of age stories that I wanted to tell. Um, yeah, and specifically for the girl characters to be... Um, yeah, the kinds of, of people I recognized in a certain way um, or that I felt deep empathy for. I was just going to follow up on that. I mean, it, you know, what the responses have been to the story, if you've gotten any, uh, right, especially as an AAPI, like queer woman, it's almost like you have to separate the two at times or you separate your two identities, right? If you grew up, watched your, uh, like Joy Luck Club was such a big deal, but you saw straight Asian women telling their personal stories. I feel like Gods of Want is like, I I wish that I had it when, uh, you know, I was coming of age. Yeah, and I think I wanted to be really careful not to like think too much of trying to represent someone or trying to represent an experience because I think that in itself 
can be a gaze that can turn really like anthropological or ethnographic. And I wanted the work to be free of that gaze. And I think I was thinking a lot about what can I transform rather than what can I represent? Because I was really afraid of like the trap of authenticity um, and this idea that you, you have to be authentic and prove that you're authentic. And I always think like to who, to whom are you trying to prove the authenticity of your story? And it's so funny because a lot of young writers come to me now and they ask me like, um, how did you get, like, how did you get permission to play with mythologies that you've inherited? I have all these family stories. I have all these myths that I love so much, but I'm too afraid to write about them. And I was like, oh, that's kind of the danger of authenticity and this idea that you have to be given permission in order to write about um, these inherited stories. And I just wanted to tell them that, you know, writing is artifice. It is theater, it's performance, it's magic tricks. Um, and I think inauth inauthenticity is really fun and wonderful <laughs> and exciting. Um, and the beauty of, of something like myth or something like an inherited story is that it doesn't belong to a single person. It's, it, there's, no, there's no real like copyright on it. It belongs collectively to all of us. Um, so I'm always like about like, oh no, don't ask for permission. <laughs> And don't think like, oh, I have to be authentic. I have to represent these stories or my family authentically. Um, I always, I always tell people just think about transformation and what, what can you do on the page, um, like craft wise, um, and that's all you really need to think about as a writer. And then, and then we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting how many, um, whether it's folk tales or you know famous uh, uh, books, um, you know stories that kind of like everyone knows. And then when you kind of try to track them down and, you know, you talk to the people who've done the research and they're like, oh, yeah, there are like 53 different versions of that story. Because, you know, in every country or village or whatever it was told, it was told in their own terms. And their enemies were the enemies and the, you know, whatever it was. And, and uh, I, 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 I definitely am liking the idea that there is no authentic, authenticity and, and authority are... are um, there are things to use or not use, but I don't think they're necessarily rules. Um, well, okay. So I've got to deal, deal with this and I'm, cause I'm the old one here. You were named one of the five under five by the national book foundation. Your first novel was published when you were 22. Uh, it was a candidate for the Penn Faulkner award and the center for fiction, uh, center for fiction, first novel prize. Um, considering that most writers languish in kind of unpublished obscurity for years or even decades, before they have a book published, much less, you know, awards and praise. So what do you think about your success? And, and, and uh, you know, what does it mean to you to have a kind of achieved some prominence so soon? Yeah, I think, I think I'm really grateful um, to my readers because I think I, it still stuns me to this day that there, there's anyone who's reading the work. Like I find it so astonishing and so miraculous um, when I think about that, especially because I have such a deep love. Um, like I grew up in libraries and just imagining that like my book would be on a shelf and someone could kind of land upon it or stumble upon it the way I did. Um, it's just, it's so miraculous. Like there's no other word for it. Um, and also feeling deeply grateful because it really is kind of, you know, the village to raise a child. There really is a village <laughs> to birth this book. Um, and there are so many people involved. Um, my editor, my agent, like all the peers that I wrote with. 
that in some ways it doesn't necessarily feel like it all belongs to me in a certain way. And I, I, I find that that's nice too, because I think it takes a certain amount of pressure off of me too, especially because I think the goalposts of success are constantly moving. <laughs> They're constantly moving and there's, con- there's, it's constantly shifting. Um, so I think I do take heart in the fact that my writing has allowed me to form relationships with people um, who I now work closely with and who I feel like my life is so much improved because of their presence. Um, so I try to focus on those like qualitative things um, because I think the quantitative parts are like really scary and also like kind of a trap too, <laughs> um, of falling into like, Oh my God, you have to publish, you know, this again immediately or like sell this many copies or do all of, or get this many, um, accolades. Um, so I think trying to really keep myself like rooted in those relationships that I formed because of my writing has been really, really important and healthy for me. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back to the book and uh, read from uh, myths here, Nua, the, the story of Nua and, and uh, being a god. Nua had a baby with another god and gave birth to a baked ham. The baked ham was cut to thumb-sized pieces and sprinkled all over the earth to populate it. So you're saying we're made of ham. <laughs> and that's in the book, but I guess I'll ask you, you know, uh, just a different way or a different story of sharing how humans were made, I guess. Share with us, I mean, the myth behind that, but also some other favorite myths, maybe. Yeah, so I am a big fan of that story because I'm really fascinated by the kind of goddess, the goddess of creation, Um She's theorized to either be a snake or a snail, which I'm very delighted by because I, I love the idea that a giant snail <laughs> created all other creatures. Um, poor snails always getting crushed underfoot <laughs> by the rest of us. Um, and that story was always fascinating to me because I think myths, there is something very liberating and free about them in the way that it can be constantly interpreted. But myths are also incredibly dangerous and I think can uphold a lot of hierarchies and um beliefs we have about ourselves that can be really incredibly damaging. And and history is myth-making too. Um, So there's a story that she created the first humans out of mud with her own hands. Um, But she was so exhausted. I think in the book I wrote that she got carpal tunnel. That's a very contemporary (laughs) contemporary thing. Um, She got so exhausted from crafting these people that she decided, okay, for my next batch of people, I'm just going to use a rope and kind of swing it around the mud and uh, create just like these people that are kind of sprayed everywhere because I'm, I'm too tired to handcraft them myself. And the first batch of people are the wealthy people. Um, so people who are rich, people who are royal, um, people who are high status. And the second group of people are, you know, the commoners. Um, and so that myth is a way to enforce that hierarchy is natural um, and that there are some people who have been touched by her personally and others who have only been kind of thrown up by her rope. Um, so I remember reading that and thinking, that's messed up. <laughs> um, that's, that's kind of terrible. But I'm really interested in the stories that we tell about ourselves, how they can mutate, how they can transform, um, how they can restrict um, and be incredibly damaging, um, but also how they can, they can be constantly rewritten. Um, so I think for me with myth, it's never a simple thing. It's always like a wrestling with something um, and thinking about the ways stories can can be the stat, can enforce the status quo um, or they can be pathways 
um, to something new or possible or more critical. Um, and so I'm always kind of balancing that and trying to, to critically write into that. Is there a favorite myth or legend uh, that you, you have, and maybe one that you kind of, is a touchstone you, you go back to time and time again? I have many, so, so, so many, but I'm especially a fond of, um, uh, I, I had a book uh, growing up that I checked out from the library that was a book of stories that um, are ballets. Um, so things like Swan Lake and Giselle um, were definitely really interesting to me. Um, stories, a lot of stories of scorned women, I think were really, really fascinating because so, mu- so many myths and folktales and fairy tales are kind of about like the woman wronged. Um, or punished in some way, and what comes out of that sometimes is vengeance, sometimes it's forgiveness, sometimes it's doubling down on punishment. Um, so I think I was really fascinated in uh, gender roles playing out in mythology and folklore, um, and how how we continue to kind of revisit those archetypes um, and motherhood as well. There's often like an absence of motherhood in fairy tales, which I find really really interesting. <laughs> I was like, oh, we're really interested in in the motherless child and um, what happens to them and the mischief they get into. Fascinating. Um, So yeah, I think many, many have been touchstones. And what's interesting is across so many different cultures, countries, and languages, the archetypes are really, really similar, um, which is something I continually find, continually find so fascinating that some version of Cinderella exists in probably almost every language, um, which is something I, um, yeah, that continues to, to interest me. Very true. Very true. What about ghosts? I, I mean, I, I never thought I would ask a writer this, but do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> I definitely believe in ghosts and haunting um, in that I, I, I believe that we are continually haunted. Um, I'm not someone who I think needs evidence, <laughs> who needs clear and concrete evidence um, that being haunted is a, is a real thing and a real phenomenon. Um, yeah, I think I'm really interested in uh, how we care for the dead because um, especially in, in my family, you know, you would leave food um, for those who have passed and for those who are deceased and also burn money for them as well. So they have something to um, spend in the afterlife. And that to me is really fascinating. I was like, hmm, why is it in this other world that we imagine money exists? <laughs> you know, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I like that. You know, I don't know if I want somebody to burn paper money <laughs> for me. I'm hoping, I'm hoping there's a world where money doesn't exist. Um, and also this idea that death is not an end and um, that that person continues to need to be fed. Like, I love that literal act of feeding the dead, feeding a ghost, a spirit, um, because it makes me think a lot about oh, we need to care for um, and give life to the dead. Um, the ancestral worship, I think, is something I, I continue to, to think about. Um, and I think in some ways I treat my writing in a similar way of thinking about like feeding the dead or caring for the dead or giving life to the dead. It's interesting. It reminds me of an interview with Stephen King decades ago. And it was about the movie adaptation of his book, The Shining. Uh, Stanley Kubrick did that. And he was talking about, you know, he, used to, he would have these conversations with Stanley Kubrick. And at one point he asked Kubrick, do you believe in God? And Kubrick said no. And what King was mentioning this was, he was using that as an example of why Kubrick didn't get the book. 
because he didn't understand, you know, if you will, a, a fantastic uh, element of the entire story. It all had to be much more very logical. And, and uh, so he, he told a different story, basically, than, than the one that Stephen King was telling in his book. Um, you know, authors and filmmakers and everyone else in the creative world are often asked how they feel about reviews and, and uh, what's it? I mean, obviously, I mentioned a number of the, the positive uh, acclaim you've received. Um, do you get negative reviews and how do you feel about them when you, when you see them? Yeah. Well, first thing I wanted to say, I, that anecdote is really interesting to me, um, especially hearing that from a horror writer too, because I feel I'm like, oh yeah, ghosts just want to be remembered. I think, I think that's, that's their only pure desire is to be remembered. And I think there's something really interesting and, and um, maybe a little devastating about that too. Um, but yeah, no, with reviews, I think I try not to read them. Um, I do have a really wonderful, lovely, I do have wonderful, lovely people who send me positive things. <laughs> um, but I think that positive praise can also be as influential on your writing as negative um, criticism as well. I think both of them, uh, if taken too much to heart, can be influential in these ways. Because I think even when I read really positive things, um, I have to remember it's it's not really meant for the author. Um, and that the world of criticism I, I, exists outside of me um, because it's about this book that is now kind of detached from me and lives on with other people and their various interpretations. Um, so I try as much as possible to emotionally distance myself from those um, from that work. And at the same time, I, I very much appreciate it because um, I think reviews are important, um, super, super important. Um, and I always hope that they they spark conversations but I know that it's not my role to be a part of those conversations. I'm going to go back and read from the book. And I picked this part really because I just love the, you know, the descriptions and every, almost every sentence in the book, by the way, uh, you know, you write in this style. Um, so here's the quote that I chose. The La La store was so bright inside that the sky outside looked dull and thick as a scab. The fluorescent lights silvered the floors almost translucent, and I slid my heels through the aisles like I was skating on an ice river. Um, it was so, you know, like a dream. It was so vivid, like your dreams. And, but the question is quite the opposite. Are you ever at a loss for words? Mm. I think it's funny because I think of most things I'm at a loss for words. Um, and it's really interesting because I find that the most kind of momentous things happening in my life at any given time are the things I can't write about. Um, and what I can write about are often these like very small um, isolated moments or hauntings that come from either like a distant past or feel kind of adjacent to everything that I'm like currently dealing with or grappling with. Like I find that there needs to be these like degrees of separation for me to be able to write toward it or find language for it. Um, so I think anything related to my present moment, <laughs> anything related to like my active conscious mind, I'm, I'm usually at a loss <laughs> uh, to describe or to really articulate. Thinking about the language that, that you use in your fiction and your prose, um, of course, reminds us you're an author, at, you're a writer of prose, but you're also a poet. Um, are these the same parts of you or do you see them as kind of a, I'm a writer and I'm a poet. 
I definitely think it's the same part of me. And I think I have a reverence toward poetry that is rivaled by nothing else. <laughs> um, I think I, when I was first started writing, I, I thought I only was wanted to write poetry. I wasn't that interested in prose form um, because it was where I found, again, that sense of liberation of language um, and where I found all these rules were being broken and that there was kind of no way to do it wrong. It was so inventive, endlessly inventive and focused on language in a way that really resonated with me. And I still feel that way. And I think kind of ironically, my love and reverence toward poetry makes it very difficult for me to write it <laughs> because I think that the more that you admire something, the more difficult it is to imagine yourself being able to delve into it or emulate it. Um, not to say that you, I need permission to write poetry, um, especially because I was just anti-permission minutes ago, um, but that I find that when I write prose, in some ways, I'm a little bit more lax and loose with myself. Um, and I think I allow myself to be more ridiculous and make more mistakes. Um, and I think because of that, uh, I end up writing more prose <laughs> than poetry. But I think that poetic voice is always something I would carry with me. And that has shaped who I am as a prose writer. Curious to know uh, the family response, you know, especially the, your success as a writer, as a poet, but also knowing that, you know, you're so good at telling stories and, and, and if they themselves now find them, you know, do you find them at holidays to be sharing as many stories with you as possible? Yeah. I mean, they're very proud of me. And what I find so interesting is that I feel like I'm the kind of writer that is like deeply uninteresting to my family members <laughs> um, because I think my family members are really, they love plot and they're also excellent at plot, um, excellent at action and drama. And I find that my more kind of slow unfurling language based forms of storytelling are like not as interesting <laughs> to them, which I, I love. I love any form of like irreverence toward literary fiction because I think literary fiction can take itself very, very, very seriously sometimes. So I really enjoy when the response is like, ah, could use some more murder and intrigue. You know, <laughs> I, I absolutely adore that. Um, but yeah, definitely. I think that if anything, I'm more careful about wanting to remember more and also to keep a record of stories that are happening around me. I think before my work was published, I let a lot of things kind of just slide past me like, oh, I've heard this a million times or, oh, that's not important. And I think now, even if I'm like, oh, I don't want to hear it or I, I don't think it's important, I know that it, it will in some way work its way into my kind of dream world and unconscious. So I think I'm more careful about listening now. Um, because I, everyone has always been talkative. <laughs> I just haven't always been listening. That's great. Um, we've been talking a lot about the stories in your gods of, of a want book. Um, but your first book published book was, um, your novel, bestiary, bestiary, bestiary. Um, tell us the background of that. How did you go about, about putting it together? And, and did you enjoy getting into a big task like a novel and how was it? You know, again, how did you go about and get it get it in print? Um, so, what would seem to a lot of other authors probably as being very easily, but maybe it wasn't so much on your side. Yeah, I think I think it's a combination. So much of it was luck and chance, and I think I didn't realize that until later. Um, like looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, wow, I thought that was normal. That was not normal. <laughs> like there was so much involved that was absolutely wild and so, so luck based. 
Um, but yeah, it's funny. I that book. I also chose a title that I don't know how to say. I've been calling it Bestiary this whole time, and it's funny because when I started doing actual events for it and realized I had to say the title out loud, I realized that that's not the correct pronunciation, and I continue to say it. So I always give permission to say it however they want. Um, but yeah, I, I wrote that book because I didn't know how hard it was. I think at the time, I think I wrote it with this feeling of, oh, I'm just playing, I'm just exploring, I'm just having fun. And because of that, writing a novel, it didn't feel like work, and it didn't ever feel like I was writing a novel or writing something really huge or that had to be cohesive. Um, because I, yeah, I, I kind of gave myself permission to not take it so seriously and to allow myself to really explore and be playful. And I think now that's really different. Now I enter something thinking, oh, this is going to be a novel or this could be a novel. And it's a much, much different feeling. So I think looking back on that self that was writing without really any intention of conceiving it as this final published product was like a, was a very beautiful and pure space. <laughs> so I think in some ways, you know, publication is always what we aspire to. But there's also something really beautiful in, again, writing for yourself. Um, which is something I never would have believed if, had I told my previous self, because my previous self would have been like, what are you talking about? Like, that's the summit. That's the mountain to climb. It's publication. Like, what can be better than that? Um, but there is something really, really pure and just fun um, about having gotten to write that novel without ever really conceiving it, conceiving of it as a final project or a final manuscript in any way. Just a follow-up question to that, um, you know, uh, for example, John is a writer. You're a writer. I am not a writer. I suck at writing and that's okay. But there are a lot of people who aspire to become writers and I feel like, you know, sometimes it could take years and years and years. And I bet you get this question a lot. And that is, you know, what, what advice do you have for people who do want to become writers? Yeah, I always tell people, yeah, I always tell people that I'm the one who needs the advice. Um, I have a book of advice that I'm constantly writing in because I ask people constantly, <laughs> um, please give me your wisdom and your advice. I need it dearly. Um, yeah, I think it's advice that one of my professors, um, Ratu Latron Sap, who wrote a book called Sightseeing, which is really brilliant, um, told me once in class and um, what he said was, or not in class, but um, that he told me, um, that writing is kind of the only thing that ends the anxiety about writing and the thinking about writing. Um, and I realized, oh, that's what is the agony for me. It's the anxiety and thinking about writing that makes it difficult. But once I actually sit in front of the page and just start, it all starts to fade away. All the questions of, does it matter? Will it matter? Am I doing this right? What am, you know, am I enforcing this? Am I not enforcing this? It all kind kind it only fades away when I'm actually in the process of doing it. Because then it's, you know, the character and the language and being immersed in the process. Um, so for me, I think it's uh the advice I give to myself is to to do to actually do it and, and think of it as a practice, um, rather than always as producing something that can be published. Yeah. Over the years, Michelle and I have interviewed uh, quite a few authors, fiction and nonfiction, but um, also filmmakers and artists, cartoonists. Um, and I'm always interested in their very differing attitudes towards social media. I mean, some of them literally welcome the, the interaction with their readers or, or, or customers or however they see them. You know, it, it really appreciate it. Others cannot stand to have that, that constant 
inflow of, of positive or negative kind of uh, 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 contact. What's your approach to it and how do you feel about it? I think it fluctuates and changes um, definitely from like a month to month, year to year basis. But I think for me, I definitely think it is really valuable and wonderful. I think during the pandemic, especially because I didn't get to see my book in bookstores and I didn't do any in-person events for them. Seeing the book on social media was kind of the only way I knew that it was real. Um, I, it was really sad to, you know, not be able to drop into a, into a local store and actually see it. And so it, it, it kind of existed in my mind and on social media. And um, the reality of it was I was able to see it living lives with readers because of social media. And I think at the same time, especially when I'm in a writing or drafting phase, it is important for me to kind of stay off of social media in certain ways because I think that, A, I can kind of endlessly sacrifice time to it. <laughs> it's just this endless loop. Um, then I think oftentimes it can foster comparison. Um, because we use social media oftentimes to post our best news um, and the best parts of our lives, uh, sometimes when I am doing something difficult like drafting or um, I'm feeling particularly self-conscious or insecure, it can be very easy to kind of compare yourself to others um, on social media and that can really jeopardize, um, yeah, the being like fully immersed in a project. Uh, so for me, it's kind of this almost like a life cycle of social media where like certain times of the year, I feel like I can be more on it. And then other times of the year, I feel like I have to withdraw from it. What about working with a publisher and the experiences and your thoughts uh, about it? You're young, you're a young writer, woman of color. I mean, these are also we hear from stories of folks who talk about the challenges that they face. Uh, but with, I'm curious to hear what you think. Yeah, I feel like I'm very lucky because the imprint that publishes my books, One World, is a mission-driven imprint um, and very committed uh, to uh, publishing marginalized writers um, across uh, many spectrums. And I think that's something that really buoys me and I, I think also um, has made my publishing experience different from, I think, what I expected or possibly from other people's experience. Um, so I think it's, I mainly just, I feel gratitude for the people that I found and kind of the close knit group of people that I found who, um, I feel like are championing my work and who I also believe deeply in and who work with other writers who I admire, um, and really respect as well. Um, but yeah, definitely. I think, um, sometimes it is really good to feel a sense of detachment from, um, readers responses just because. There are some people who um, maybe approach the work in ways that I um, don't love or don't wouldn't be something that I, um, you know, hope, <laughs> hope for the book. Um, as much as there are people who I think really see it and understand it for what it is. And, and they have the right to do that as well. And I'm, I, I have to remember not to that it's not within my control and that I have to step away from it and release it. Um, and just the only thing I can control is what's on the page in front of me um, that I'm working on now. So I just tell myself, like, go back to the work um, and go back to the writing, because that's the only thing that can that you can actually control. That's really interesting mentioning how other a reader might interpret it differently than maybe what you were saying or hoping they would get from it. I always think back to um, I knew someone who loved Oliver Stone's movie platoon 
you know, this anti-war, anti-Vietnam U.S. war movie. And this guy loved it because for him it was a pro-war movie. I don't understand the thinking. I know some other folks who really loved Oliver Stone's, was it, was it Wall Street? Did he do Wall Street? Uh, before your time, perhaps. Um, but, you know, this this movie very much about the corruption and, and power dynamics of, Wash, of Wall Street. They loved it. They were totally Reaganite, pro-Wall pro Street people. But, you know, now this may just be that Oliver Stone is particularly bad at communicating the point of his movies. I don't know. But um, I often do think that whenever you have a writer or an artist, a painter, or whoever, will just say, ah, it's whatever you see in it. And I'm like, well, if you write a story that's about the you know universal humanity of of individuals and someone else sees that you know sees like a a nazi uh theme out of it i don't think that's a matter of you know whatever you see in it is correct it's there there are there are obviously um things for which the writer or the the artist cares deeply about um, do you ever feel the need to, and I'm sorry, this is kind of rambling, but I mean, do you ever feel the, the desire to like argue with those people or to, to, to try to change their mind or is it, you know, they bring to it what they bring to it? I feel like I, I definitely, I need to step back from it because I think it's very easy for me to internalize. Um, I think less about wanting to argue and, and confront it and more about how that will affect what I write in the future. Um, cause I find that I start to believe it. Um, and if someone says they see it in the work, um, I, I, I do hold on to that and I think, Oh, I am doing that. Oh, what does that mean? Um, and it ends up, I, I, I carry it with me as I start the next thing. Um, so I think in some ways I have to kind of find my, my isolation, um, and also find, find my community of people. Um, cause oftentimes the people who bring these outside interpretations to the work that are maybe not in, not always, you know, the best of intents, um, are people who really are not that interested in your work either way. Um, and are often trying to find your work for a specific reason to enforce a narrative that they have in their mind. Um, so I'm a big believer in, uh, yeah, surrounding myself and with peers and with friends who are invested in the writing that I do, and I am in turn invested in what they do. So this this mutual sense of we care about each other as people, um, and as an extension, we care about what we make, um, rather than yeah, maybe people who are like I I don't care, I wouldn't care about anything related to this. <laughs> either way. And I have absolutely no investment in this kind of work or this kind of writing. As we wind down our program and thank you, this has been so fun. And again, I uh, loved or enjoyed reading Gods of Want. I got to go back and finish the whole thing. I'll go ahead and flip to the very end of the book and read the last paragraph. And we'd love to get, you know, your final thoughts and perhaps some, some takeaways you'd like for your audience, people who or grabbing the book and, and currently reading like myself. So let me go ahead and read that final paragraph. The cabinet began to leak song, a frantic beat like wings flapping. But when mama opened the door, there was nothing. At night, we listened to the song for hours, counting the notes until we fell asleep. The night noise by wings, a heartbeat under the sink. But eventually we gave up trying to measure the lifespan of that sound. We let it outlive us. We let it tell us our names. 
a very, very profound ending, by the way. There's so many takeaways from that. Thank you. Yeah, I knew that that was going to be the last story in the book and that that was going to be the last paragraph. Like I knew it was such certainty. Um, I knew it was going to begin the book and what was going to end it. So I knew it was going to start with Aunt Land and end with that story. Um, and I had no idea what was going to go in between. <laughs> I set it up, you know, like these goalposts. And I was like, I don't know what the rest of the book will be, but I'm, I'm certain about these two things. Because um, I wanted to begin with the collective and end with the collective. It begins with a collective of aunts and ends with a collective of brothers. Um, and I knew specifically that I wanted to end with um, that line, we let it tell us our names, because so much of the book is um, kind of obsessed with names and naming. Um, what it means to name things, what it means to change names, who gives us those names, and how do we internalize those names, and how, how do we live with them? Um, and I also wanted to end with this scene of grief, because I think so much of the book is about grief and death. Um, and about rituals and funerals and what happens to the dead and what does it mean to live with the knowledge of death. Um, so to me, it encapsulated like this family standing around an urn under a sink and to have that urn kind of come to life. Um, to me, encapsulated themes of death, but then also um, the kind of livingness of that, the aliveness of that death um, and transformative possibility. Um, and I, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of very open-ended uh, very open-ended endings um, and endings that kind of feel ambiguous in a certain way. So I felt, oh, it's a quite, it's quite an ambiguous paragraph. Like we don't quite know what is going on. Like, is there a bird in that urn? Like, is there, is it the grandmother's heart in that urn? <laughs> um, but I, I love to, um, to kind of linger in the mystery of that. On your website, you mentioned that your next book is a novel called Organ Meats. What can you tell us? Um, it's a, it's, I'm calling it a horror novel, though I think actual horror novelists would have a bone to pick with me if I said that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's about, um, girls who are descended from wild dogs, um, which is based on a species of dog in Taiwan that, um, went partially extinct, um, due to colonialism, um. And yeah, it's it's kind of more centered uh, again in coming of age, in in bodies, and then in um, thinking about transfer, transformational possibilities um, of of our bodies. Yeah. And uh, can you share with us when we might be able to expect the release of the new book? I I wish I wish <laughs> I wish I had an answer. Possibly in the next few years is, is, is probably the only safe window I can give. Um, hopefully I'm not jinxing it. <laughs> I'll knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, that's the, see, that's the ignorant question fans um, ask, you know, when you're not a writer, like, well, can't you just give it to us like tomorrow? I, I wish, I wish if that were possible, I would, I would make it happen. <laughs> John? Do you have any interest in seeing your work translated to the screen or to the stage? Yeah, definitely. That's, I'm definitely interested in screenwriting. I'm definitely interested in visual translations. Um, yeah, and even as a kid, I, I loved dance and I loved the world of dance. So even thinking about like a nonverbal like dance uh, form or translation or interpretation of my work would be really interesting, um, especially because I write so much about embodiedness and bodies that... Um, I think 
thinking about like the physicality um, of these stories um, and these characters is is something I'm interested in. I have to ask, I guess, almost kind of connected to that is, do you listen to music when you write? And if so, what? Oh, I actually don't listen to music when I write. Um, I find that I enjoy ambient noise and I kind of like letting the sounds of the world kind of leak into the writing. Um, and I find that things that I overhear oftentimes make their way into the manuscript and conversations that happen in, in backgrounds. Um, so I like to kind of be alert to those other sounds, especially if I'm stuck and just staring at my screen, in which case eavesdropping on other people is very, very useful. I'm curious then uh, what kinds of stories you'll tell with the conversations your parents <laughs> are having Oh, definitely more more bird stories to come. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, what do you do when you're not writing? Like what what other activities, you know, bring you joy? Yeah, I mean, I actually am kind of an amateur birder. Um, so I do enjoy birding and bird watching. Um, I definitely try to read as much and specifically to read in translation. I really love reading um, works in translation. Um, I, I find that it's so much more, it feels so much more expansive to, to see what's possible in a story um, when I read in translation. Um, and yes, I think recently, speaking of bodies, um, attempting to learn how to cook more and better um, is also something that I'm constantly thinking about, especially since I write so much about food. Okay, my last question then is, if you were to show someone one of your stories that would perhaps either you just most want someone else to see or that you think represents you and your, your, your work. Um, what would it be and why? Mm, I think I'll, I'll choose a story from the book. Um, one of the stories is called Mariella. Um, and I, that story really is something I reach return to and revisit. Um, Cause I think it encapsulates all of the themes that I'm interested in um, coming of age um, the entwinement of violence and love and desire, um, intergenerational storytelling, mothers and motherhood, um, matrilineage. And so to me, it feels like this distillation um, of what I'm fascinated by. And I think everything I write in some ways is like a, a, an echo of that story or like a watering of that story. I mean, it's just kind of ever expanding outward um, for me. In my, um, it's, it's, it's like the it's one version among many versions of a story that I'm always trying to tell. My very last question is if you will ever give a try or hand on um, nonfiction or something like a memoir. Yeah, that's something I'm definitely really interested in. I think um, I, I have a lot of stories. Um, and interestingly, I would love to write nonfiction that's about these very small moments um, or that are centered on objects. Um, or something transient, because um, I think rather than a grand narrative of my life, of my life, I have uh, like vignettes and anecdotes that I'm interested in in revisiting and kind of stitching together and see see what could come of that. So maybe, maybe one day we'll see. That sounds great. That sounds awesome. Well, I can't wait, and I look forward to more of your work. And thank you so much for Gods of Want. Uh, by the way, for all of you who want to just take a break from everything that's happening out there in this world, you can go and get lost in Gods of Want by K-Ming Chang. Thank you so much, K-Ming, for joining us for this program. Thank you so much for, for your wonderful questions um, and for tolerating my, my bird ambient sounds. <laughs>
John. Uh, thank you again to our special guest on today's program, Kei Ming Chang. I'll see if I can get this to show in the video. Uh, author of Gods of Want um, and Bestiary or Bestuary. You can pronounce it however you want. You have the author's express permission on that. Last but not least, thanks to all of you watching and listening online. You can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe and have a good rest of your week. Goodbye.